The MHI Industry Leadership Podcast brings together the solutions, providers, and thought leaders of the materials handling industry to talk about trends, technologies, solutions, and best practices to move the industry forward. Christian Dow is the Executive Vice President of Membership and Industry Leadership at MHI. In each episode, Christian will be talking to the leaders and members of MHI's industry groups. Let's join him now. Welcome to another exciting episode of the MHI Warehouse Automation Podcast. Today, we're getting frosty as we dive into the complexities of chilled and freezer or cold chain applications. You'll find out what you need to understand if you've been considering building a high bay warehouse. To illuminate this topic, we're joined by two incredibly knowledgeable guests. First, we have Matt Rivenbark, Sales Director for Food and Beverage at SSI Shaper, and Alex Reed, Sales Director at Stowe Robotics US. Thank you both for joining me today. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your company and your experience? Sure. So um, Schaefer is a um, their global leading provider of material warehouse solutions. And, um, you know, we're very vertically integrated. So we supply all of our own cranes, conveyors, racking, um, basically the whole kit and caboodle for our projects. Uh, we've been in, uh, in business for about 85 years, I think now. Um, so we basically play all in the warehouse space, whether it's automation, semi-automated or manual. And uh, myself, my background, so I've been at Shaper for 12 years now. I started in a customer support role as a hotline technician. Uh, briefly left the company, came back. I did um, system design for about three or four years and then jumped into sales in 2015. So I've done a lot of different roles within the industry and i um, excited to talk about this topic with you today. Awesome. Alex, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit more about your company and, you know, Stowe and then uh, your experience? Absolutely. Yeah. Stowe Robotics is a new division out of the Stowe Group. The Stowe Group is uh, has been around since 1987. Um, they are a European-based rack manufacturer, uh, one of the largest in the world, and the robotic division is pretty new. So they they started robotics uh, in some what we'd call semi-automation in, in the you know early 2010s. And then have really uh, ramped up uh, investment and infrastructure into their actual robotics for fully automated systems for warehouses uh, in 2018, 2019. So while young in the robotic space, um, it's a, it's got a company, it's a company with rich history and, and great financial backing um, and growing here in the U.S. Uh, I've been in the uh, material handling, supply chain, logistics space for about 15 years. Um, various roles in sales throughout my career, uh, a lot of great learning. Um, you know, one of the things I love around, about this industry is that there's, there's something new in any warehouse, no matter where you go, even if it's the same exact company with a, you know, another space in another city, there's something completely different about it. That's just exciting about it. So both of you are members of the ASRS group, Right. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience in the uh, ASRS group and what the group does and how they come together? I'll start with you, Matt. Well, you know, most of my experience with MHI has been through the the, the various trade shows that, that, you know, you guys host with Modex and Promat. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of good success at those shows over the years. And, uh, you know, last year, actually the last three years, I've done speeches at those shows, one specifically about last year. Um, for the uh, the high bay warehouse, um, basically a tutorial on how to build a high bay warehouse. So very pertinent to this. And um, yeah, so that's been most of my experience with MHI. 
That's great. And that resource should be able to be found on the mhi.org slash ASRS. Alex, have you been participating much with the ASRS group at this point? Uh, not much, but in my past experience, it's been it's it's a great resource to find information on all things automated storage and retrieval. Um, general educational seminars like what Matt has done in the past, and then also just great resources for people who are wanting to dive in to, to be in the industry in general. So um, it, it, people who have maybe done other parts of, of being in material handling, but now want to jump into something with ASRS or robotics, it's a great, great jumping off point to get some good education. Yeah, it seems like AS, the uh, ASRS systems and that product group have been a very uh, hot topic for the last few years. It's been oh, yeah. certainly an, an area where a lot of the other industry groups and product groups from HI go. I wish we had as much momentum as that group does. So, so Alex, let's start with you with the kind of the first question. What's new in cold chain? So what's new is is there are some new emerging trends, but a lot of what's going on in cold chain right now is some of what's been going on for a long time. So um, some of the trends that we've had out there that are existing trends are there is no space. Um, a lot of uh, cold chain, you, you go to a lot of these buildings, you'll ask a lot of the operators, their buildings are are not new, pretty buildings. They are buildings that have existed since the 50s, 60s, and 70s that they're trying to retrofit and, and turn into you know some modernizations here and there to update the cooling systems. But there's just a huge lack of space, and it's a you know very high growth um, industry for for cold chain to be in. And then labor is the other one that's been going on for a while. So we continue to see labor shortages, um, high turnover. Um, the environment for cold is just a hard one to work in, and real you know unfriendly to the human body to work at negative twenty five degrees at all times. So. Um, those are some of the the ones that are out there. In terms of what's new, um, there's a lot of new players emerging and a lot of M and A activity out there. So, uh, yeah, the traditional players are are there. Um, you're you're you know very large, uh, lots of land, lots of warehouse space providers are out there for cold chain. But we've seen a lot of um, venture capital and private equity money being poured into brand new companies people leaving some of the big box places and starting their own firms. But then with that also coming mergers and acquisitions. So lots of those smaller players that have been around for a long time are being snapped up by these VC companies to, to be formed into larger conglomerates um, to, to just increase that space. But tons of growth, tons of money, um, and yeah, a lot of just great activity in the in the cold space right now. Yeah, a couple of things on that, you know, like uh, the the consolidation thing is a very real thing within MHI. You know, these uh, this industry is very uh, has a lot of focus to it, and it's very hot right now. And there's a lot of companies looking to acquire companies and combine companies in uh, in the space. So we're seeing that a lot from the MHI side for sure. And then the other thing was I was going to add in a little context to uh, the cold statement is that. Uh, um, this, we had a, a speaker from Kroger come to one of our meetings last year. And the one thing he said is our workers do not like working in cold or dirty areas. And so those are the, uh, the areas that are critical to automate in. Matt, what are, you, what are you seeing from kind of what's new in the cold chain? Well, I mean, there's some really great points, Alex. I mean, as far as, as new stuff, you know, I'm going to go more towards the solution side, I would guess, of this uh, discussion. I mean, as far as technologies that we're leveraging into cold chain projects, I mean, obviously the the major trends for a long period of time in building the high bay warehouse style of automated pallet solution for the cold chain, you know, just does a very good job of optimizing space and footprint, allows you to build tall instead of 
you know, in large amounts of uh, square footage, right? And um, these solutions really make these projects, uh, you know, affordable, really, because uh, by consolidating footprint, you're able to really generate the cost savings that help pay for the projects. Um, as far as other solutions you're seeing dropping in there, so you're seeing a lot of requests for layer picking, um, as well as AGV solutions. I mean, the AGV uh, market has been chasing uh, kind of that freezer rated AGV for quite a period of time. You're starting to see some breakthroughs there. Um, and those, obviously, the AGV technology is great for, for any kind of retrofit or brownfield projects. Um, and you're going to continue to see those gain, gain more traction, you know, with not just the transport of product, but also the automated storage or retrieval of it with like a turret truck, for instance. Um, that's kind of what you're seeing is kind of that next new innovation in the cold chain space. Excellent. So, Alex, how how have cold chain operators adopted automation? Are they, you know, I mean, we we know like on the general warehouse side of things, eighty five percent of warehouses are have little to no automation. What does that look like on the cold chain side of business? On the cold chain side of things, it's it's not too different. So, a, a lot of um, you know, Matt made some great points of what's what's emerging out there and what's new technology going into these warehouses, and it's. Um, I think what's happened in the past is you, you've got your tried and true high bay warehouse stacker cranes. I mean, those those have been freezer rated and working, you know, the workhorses of these high bay warehouses for 25, 30 years. I think there has been a a mindset that automation in a lot of these cold warehouses has to be an all or nothing proposition. So either you automate all of the process or you don't do any of it. And unfortunately, a lot of these operators gotten burned on some fully automated systems where while the cranes were, you know, ready and, and rated for cold, certain other parts of the system weren't. So maybe the conveyor wasn't, or maybe the layer picker wasn't, or, you know, again, then these have all started to come about, but a lot of the, uh, you know, as far as emerging trends for technology and what's, what's new for these operators, what they're doing to adopt technology lately is looking at a single segment of their warehouse to just automate a simple process. So whether that's automated unloading of a trailer, um, whether that's, uh, you know, moving a pallet from a staged chilled area into the freezer with a, you know, an AGV like Matt had talked about or an AMR, um, having some incremental pieces of automation versus just going full bore with a hundred million dollar system has been a, a lot of what's been going on lately versus, Again, with interest rates rising and the cost of money being more, um, that all or nothing approach is kind of, you know, it's still there. Um, a lot of operators are are doing that. Um, but uh, adoption, again, from what I've seen, and, and Matt, I'd love to see your thoughts too, but uh, a lot of what we've seen is that cold chain has been somewhat reluctant because a lot of these people have either been a part of a project that mm, went okay or um, are, you know, again, too cautious to do this and that inside of the warehouse. Matt, what are your thoughts? Well, as far as how they adopt, I mean, you're seeing a lot of the major players go really full in with automation. I mean, you're talking about the lineages, the U.S. cold storages, the new colds, the Americolds, all those guys. I mean, to Alex's point, there's been a lot of frustrating projects done here. And that's, I don't know if that's unique to the cold chain or not. The reality is these projects are difficult and, you know, they're not always a, a speedy um, you know, implementation that goes super well. I mean, the reality is, again, these projects are complicated. They're big. They take time. They take finesse. Um, so you're, you know, there, there's a way that you can adopt them without, you know, going full bore, right? If you're a little bit gun shy to go full automation, as, as Alex mentioned, you know, you can go in with a like a mobile rack solution or um, potentially even piloting some of these uh, freezer-ready AGVs that you're seeing out there. Um, 
So that's kind of a way for you to dip your toes in without going fully into that. But, you know, as far as projects, you're still seeing probably, I don't know, in this country, maybe five to six fully automated pallet warehouses built in the cold chain per year, at least. So um, while there's a mix of these, you know, some of the lower level players getting into these semi-automated to, you know, to you know, low automation type of projects, but you're still seeing the big guys go fully into these things with fully automated pallet, fully automated layer picking, um, and in some cases, even fully lights out case picking. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think in, in what you're getting to is is similar to what we're seeing on, on kind of the other industry group side of things is a lot of these projects start with the storage, start with the ASRS, start with the, you know, that portion. And then they, then they worry about the inbound, the outbound, the other things uh, beyond that, because I think, you know, as you guys started off with that being cold storage, you've got to get the density, right? You've got, you know, you've got to do the most with the space and the first place to address the space is in the storage portion. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Specifically for these three PLs, right? Cause the three PL market is obviously based on how many pallet positions I have and how, how, you know, how I charge for those pallet positions. So trying to leverage your, your vertical footprint, try to get as many pallet positions as possible, especially in this capacity constrained industry um, is critical. So high bay warehouse makes a ton of sense. And like I said, it's, that's probably also the best ROI of any of these technologies within uh, the cold chain portfolio. So Matt, what are the main benefits of building a high bay warehouse for cold storage instead of you know a conventional building? Yeah, so I mean, this kind of leads directly from the last question, right? I mean, when you're building the high bay warehouse, I mean, very often we're going somewhere between 100 to 130 feet tall, right? So at that point, you're able to build three times as tall, which you know logic dictates, hey, if I'm gonna be even remotely as dense, I should be about one third of the overall footprint, right? And when you're talking about cold chain, which is probably the most expensive square footage in the whole warehouse game, right? Like, you know, usually a project somewhere around 250 a square foot for the warehouse space. So, you know, being able to limit that by up to a third or, you know, building one third of the total footprint you would in a manual, obviously that generates tons of cost savings. You know, that is probably the main benefit. You know, there are some sub benefits there as well, you know, because the two major things that cold storage operators have to deal with is the cost of of labor. So the automation solves that with, you know, automating the processes. But the second most is going to be your, your cost of energy, right? And using high bay warehouse solutions for that, you know, you can, you can uh, put like entry vestibules, high speed roll up doors, which are a lot more efficient um, than, you know, a, a warehouse door for a forklift or, you know, maybe even those little uh, plastic curtain things that hang down that they drive through. So you really limit the amount of, of environment creep from your frozen area into your, your warmer areas like your dock, for instance, or some kind of other picking space. And by limiting that creep, you're really making your energy solution more sustainable. Alex, you got anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think to add on to what Matt's saying, I'm mean, 100% correct on all what he's talking about. I think, uh, you know, another huge benefit of a high bay warehouse is just the overall building cost. So because you've got a smaller footprint and m- most of the time, not every time, but most of the time you're you're using a rack supported structure, uh, the building cost can be 30 to 40% less to do a rack supported building versus building a conventional warehouse with all that footprint, with all the cooling cost, with all that extra space to cool, you know, on the floor. And then that also can reduce the overall site construction costs. So you've got less ground to grade um, from a watershed management. You might have to have less of a retention area. Uh, your parking lot might have to be smaller. Again, there's there's a lot of benefits to building a high bay warehouse from an overall footprint standpoint, not just you know inside the four walls of the building, but outside of it too, in terms of the actual cost of, of building that building. So are you, are you guys seeing this as a uh, kind of a brownfield add-on 
like a an existing facility or Alex you mentioned you know a lot of the buildings and uh, and facilities are built in the 50s 60s and 70s and are they building kind of this as an add-on to their existing facility or are they is this typically more of a new new build or what we call greenfield Alex so uh, we're seeing we're seeing both so um because of the increasing you know population growth inside of urban areas a lot of these suburbs don't necessarily have this warehouse infrastructure there yet. Um, so sometimes they're building brand new greenfields. You know, Matt's saying five to six a year, and that's that's absolutely true. Um, we're seeing a growing demand for brownfields as well, though. So asking questions of how and how do I increase that precious density and increase my inventory turn so that I can make more money as a 3PL operator. You know, if I if I can do the same number of turns per year with 40% more pallets in my building, well, that just goes straight to the bottom line of a building that they might already own. Um, again, it's it's not the prettiest building a lot of times. And so we have to be careful about saying that automation could go in there because automation loves consistency. And so if you've got you know the world's worst floor or um, the building has been Frankenstein together, which a lot of these have been over the years, um, we'd have to take a look. But uh, you know, we've seen an, an increase in demand in brownfield space to say, okay, you know, can I do a pack and hold automation? Can I build a pallet shuttle system inside of an existing building that's only 35 feet tall? And um, the answer is, is yes to those things. But again, it's got to be the right situation, of course, as always. But um, lots of demand on both ends. Matt, do you have additional thoughts to that? I, I would agree with that completely. I mean, you're getting a, a variable mix of, hey, I have a greenfield project, brand new. You know, as Alex mentioned, there's a lot of money being dumped into this industry right now. So there's a lot of new players trying to either buy or build footprint of their own. So you're seeing a good mix of classic full greenfields where they have to basically fully develop the site from scratch. Um, you're seeing uh, a fair amount of expansions, you know, as, as Frankenstein style of building, you know, like we recently completed a project that was a, a fifth expansion of a cold storage warehouse. So, you know, it's kind of a variable growth from, you know, kind of looking at the cold chain in, in, in a hole because it starts out, you know, with double deep, then they're doing some, some turret, some man aboard turret truck stuff with VNA style racking and then fully automation. So you're kind of seeing that spectrum of, you know, of growth of technology, that industry across it. Um, so you're seeing a fair mix of those. And then, you know, as you mentioned, they're also looking at retrofitting some of these older buildings, specifically in the 3PL world, right? Because they're kind of building a mix of new stuff and also trying to leverage their current space and make it more efficient and optimized. Matt, what are some of the things you need to learn about a client's business to tailor the solution? I mean, we obviously the, the facility, the new and the old, we talked about that, but what are some of the other things that you need to learn about you know, from your, you know, potential implement um, a company that's going to implement a, a solution. What, you know, how do you tailor it to their needs? Right. So, you know, essentially we want to learn everything about what you're doing, right? I mean, we know what we do best, you know, our customers know about their business best. We just try to blend that, that experience, to try to develop a project, right? So, you know, some of the key stuff you want to know, you know, what does the load unit look like? You know, what's the length, width, and height of that pallet? Are there different heights of pallets? Because, you know, in an ASR rack, you can do some uh, some variable height classes. So you have some, you know, some taller pallets, maybe some shorter pallets to try to blend your inventory um, there. But knowing, you know, what that pallet looks like, you know, what kind of pallets are you using? Is that GMA, Pico? Is that, um, you know, CHEP? Whatever those might be. Um, you know, how many SKUs do you have? You know, how do those SKUs get proliferated based on first in, first out or first expired, first out? Um, you know, wanting to know, you know, throughputs. You know, sometimes it's as simple of, hey, you know, I turn the warehouse 
you know, probably the average cold chain customer turns their warehouse somewhere between 10 and 15 times per year in the frozen space. So, you know, knowing what that looks like, their shift structure, we can interpolate, um, you know, uh, hourly throughputs to try to size, size the automation that way. Um, but for instance, like with food, you know, if you're doing 500 different SKUs, but you have an average of, I don't know, three different expiration dates or three different lots per SKU, that's not 500 SKUs anymore. That's more or less 1500 SKUs. So, you know, all the stuff we want to learn because really you got to build in everything about that customer's business into the solution to make it work. Right. So it's very iterative and how it, how the approach is, you know, we talk, we develop something, we talk about it. Uh, we go through some revisions. Maybe we go to site, do a site visit, learn more, incorporate that in. So it's a very iterative approach for literally we try to learn as much as we can about that customer's business throughout the buildup of the project. So that, you know, once you're at final proposal stage, that thing is fully baked. Everything's in there, everything the customer needs. Alex, what additional things do you see that that you'd add to the to the list of things you would want to hear or see from a customer? Well, I love that Matt brought up the, the batch and lot size piece of, of the SKU profile. Um, a lot of, again, especially for food and grocery, a customer might come to you with a data set that shows that they've got 500 SKUs for his example, but but then they've got, you know, three, five, 10, 15 different lots within that same SKU profile of you know, deli meat. Could be the same deli meat brand type, everything, but we have to treat those as a lot of times because it has to be first in, first out as a completely different SKU every single time. So, uh, really great that he brought that up for for us um that we we try to ask as well you know if somebody's qualifying an opportunity what what's working in their warehouse currently that they they think is working and what's what what do they see as broken and the reason we ask that is because they might see storage as something that's that's not working right now but you know we're, we're when you go in and take a look at their operations sometimes it's something upstream there's their storage might be fine their picking might be fine something along those lines but there's something upstream that might be completely preventing them from doing that correctly so you know once you know to, to Matt's point once that thing is firm proposed you know to a firm proposal stage I mean that thing should be bulletproof buttoned up uh ready to go and and um you know everything about that customer's operation should be understood at that point excellent great insights. Alex, so how are these new technologies different from what we've seen before? How are things really changing from from kind of the historical solutions people were using? Yeah, so there's there's um, there's an interesting mix of new players out there coming in that are are going cold chain dedicated or single process dedicated. So, you know, Matt had talked about AGVs before, and in high bay warehouses again, those are those are tried and true. Um, people will continue to build those. Um, they are still probably the best way to, to decrease the overall risk and cost of, of doing business in a certain area. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of niche players out there looking at a single process. I, I, I think I'd mentioned before um, unloading a trailer, for example, um, there's a company out there doing robotics that um, that's all they've focused on. It's not doing an AGV that can put away after that. They literally have spent 100% of their effort on cold chain, unloading a trailer and dropping it to a dock. Um, there is a lot of labor that's spent there, but to, to you know, just look at and, and figure out one single process to automate, there's a lot of players out there looking at that one piece of the puzzle versus the entire spectrum of it. And that's, that's I think, increasing you know, what we have influence over in terms of ASRS and, and the groups that we are part of, because uh, a, it's opening up new possibilities. Again, people have been chasing the frozen AGV for, I don't know, 20 years to find one that works perfect. 
but to, to look at you know an incremental piece of automation, a people will adopt it a lot faster because it's a you know less of a cost of of entry, but also um, again, with these new startup players, they may not be making the huge splash building a new warehouse, but they want to say, hey, you know, we're we're automated and we're automating our process to our warehouse. You'll be secure and safe here. So they may just do one thing. They absolutely they can call it there, have an automated warehouse with just that one process automated. Matt, additional thoughts? Yeah, so I think one of the cool things you're seeing come up uh, here in the U.S. finally that's been a staple over in Europe is the Oxy Redux fire protection solution. And I don't know how proficient people are on this, but essentially, you know, instead of traditional dry pipe sprinkler, which takes up a ton of space in your rack, right? You have to really build a lot of uh, clearance in there for that. But the Oxy Redux basically just creates a nitrogen-rich environment so that you really can't even start a fire. And this has been the gold standard in Europe. They probably built a thousand freezers with this across the world, but for whatever reason, the US kind of slow to adopt that technology. And it, it's it's perfect for the freezer. It's perfect for the for the automated solutions. Cause I mentioned, you know, we're already using these high-speed roll-up doors and these vestibules to stop the energy creep, right? But you're also stopping that nitrogen environment from seeping out. So it's really a cost-effective solution when you're sectioning everything off and keeping that from, from moving out. And that's a it's a really cool solution. You know, I uh, I've been very close to the guys at Wagner, uh, fire protection, the guys who do this technology and trying to figure out how they fit in this market because it makes my solutions better. It makes them denser because I don't have that large footprint that I have to keep, you know, clearance there for the for the dry pipe, right? And so it makes my projects more efficient. And number one, you know, the cost of them is far less, at least at, at the implementation phase, a lot less than a standard sprinkler. But, you know, over the long run, there's more, uh, you know, operating costs associated to that. I think the break-even is about 10 years typically between a, a, a dry pipe versus a, a, an oxyreduct. But that's that's something that I think is really cool. And they're kind of in a in a phase working through the the ins and outs of the insurance piece of that. And then, you know, obviously OSHA is there saying some of this stuff of what they're doing. But I think that's a really cool solution that you're going to start to see more of here in the U.S. going forward. Yeah, and I, I, a little bit of uh, that's been something that's come up quite a bit. And we've actually talked about it, you know, within MHI a few few times over the last couple of weeks. But yeah, the NFPA standards on on having in in rack and in uh, ASRS sprinklers, or you know, the requirements are changing, and it's going to be a lot more expensive to yeah. you know to be able to put in certain types of rack and certain depths. You know, like uh, how many pallets deep can you go, and how how high can you go, and and now you have to add in additional sprinkler systems. And so if it, if uh, if that t- solution does become you know, accepted by the market, it will be definitely a game changer. It would be huge. I mean, to that point, I mean, I think FM in the last couple of years has changed, you know, in the deep lane storage solutions, I think they changed the distance between a pallet from 50 millimeters, which is about two inches to 150. So they basically tripled that um, simply to try to get that flu space to get the, the, you know, the water down in between the pallets. Right. So if we can get rid of that, you're suddenly, you know, three times as dense, right? Or, you know, you're you're getting back, you know, a third of that space back to the 50 millimeters or even tighter. I don't know what that would look like in an oxyredux, but, you know, 50 millimeters is what we use in Europe. And I would assume we'd have a similar standard. So, I mean, it could help a lot. Alex, I see you shaking your head. You got additional insights? No, he's he's hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. And especially with that 50 to 150 millimeter, you know, we, at Stowe Robotics, one of our, you know, our, our sticks is that we have a, you know, a deep lane pallet shuttle and we're running into a lot of, we won't call them issues. We're working through them, but with sprinkler systems and a lot of the fire consultants out there, they're, 
they're interpreting again, it's city to city, county to county, insurance provider to insurance provider. Uh, they will interpret their take on the FM global standard here and there. And I'm sure Matt has to encounter it a lot, but oh, yeah. you want to build a highly dense warehouse and you're basing a lot of ROI for your customer on how many pallets you can fit into a building. And sometimes the, you know, the the cold bucket of water gets splashed on you with, you know, maybe pun intended about uh, having to space those sprinklers differently. Yeah. So Alex, do you have some application examples for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a few out there that, again, we, I talked about it before where you've got robotic unloading. Um, pack and hold is a big one, too. So uh, a lot of operators are picking their orders a few days in advance based on how their, their customers order product. So um, having a small automated system to hold, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 pallets, not looking at an entire warehouse, but just looking at a few thousand pallets to put into a, a you know, called a buffer system for a day, two days, three days, and be perfectly sequenced out to a truck. It, again, those are non-value added moves. They have to pick those pallets ahead of time and put them somewhere. Um, and they're either putting them on a trailer sitting in their dock, which is very expensive, or they're taking up valuable warehouse space or dock space that they can't get around. So um, for, for cold chain, pack and hold's a big one. Um, uh, and then transferring between temperature zones. So a lot of your grocery operators, if they're operating in one very large building where they have ambient, chilled, and freezer all on one campus, they're not just building one ambient pallet, one chilled pallet, and one frozen pallet. A lot of times those pallets are mixed. So to create some automation to move pallets the long distances in these grocery warehouses between those temperature environments is another new application that a lot of people are starting to explore and ask about. Matt, do you have any application examples? Um, I mean, as far as new technologies or just in general? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I mean, in general, like I said, you know, the gold standard for this has been high bay warehouse. You know, I think that layer picking adds a, a great uh, little layer to that, you know, layer to the to the to the solution. I mean, you're seeing a lot of customers shave off a ton of their case pick requirement by going to layer picking. Um you know, as far as other other ones, you know, you're seeing a lot of mobile racking uh, put into the industry. You're seeing a lot of, uh, like, I, like I mentioned, a lot of pilots for frozer, freezer-rated AGVs. Um, I mean, that's the majority of what we're seeing. So, Matt, how about the design uh, for a system? You know, how do you determine the design criteria for, for a new system? Yep. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, and kind of those, those uh, key informations and key data and stuff, I mean, Obviously, we want to know, you know, how many pallet positions are you trying to store, right? That's that's ingredient number one. Number two, what does that load unit look like? Um, you know, how tall is it? Uh, what are the throughputs? You know, are you, are you doing anything with layer picking or case picking on top of that? You know, what's the breakdown of that full volume? I mean, I would say for most of these applications, you're somewhere about 75% full pallet pick, 25% case pick, and you can shave off usually about 80 to 90% of that case pick with layer picking opportunity. Um, so we look at all these different things just to try to balance the system out and uh, obviously have the degree of automation that the customer requires based on their throughput values. You know, we're not trying to force square pegs and around holes. We're trying to add value where we can and definitely looking at, you know, what makes sense from that perspective. So, you know, if there is a case pick, but it's very low, it's very often we would not look at automation for that. But that's kind of how we look at the requirements and then build that into the design. You know, how many how many pallet movements per hour is that? You know, how does that equate to number of cranes or, or shuttles that I would need to run the solution? Um, that type of thing. Alex, anything additional to add to kind of how the design is determined? 
Yeah, I think the the only other factor I'd, I'd put in there, and I, you know, it's it's probably should be obvious. Aside from are they interested in automation, is how, how much of an investment are they wanting to make? Because um, a lot of times you, you people will say, "Hey, we are, we're going to build a greenfield. We want high automation. We want to do layer picking. We want to do cranes. We want to do this and we want to do that." And you say, "Hey, it's it's twenty million dollars," and they go, "Oh." Maybe I don't want to do that. So again, understanding the customer, you know, our, our customers and our operators and our, our clients. Um, again, a, a big budget conversation at the very beginning is always always helpful too. But you know, Matt's Matt's been he's been right on it about what we, we usually want from our our customers and and designing a system. Are the practitioners typically work willing to work with you on an ROI and and are, is ROI critical anymore? Or is it really just a we have to do this to even be able to keep up. I mean, what, what's the state that you guys are seeing that that people are in when they have to, when they feel like they, they need to move forward with a solution like this? Yeah, so uh, the ROI is still very important. Um, again, with, with, with private equity and, and um, venture capital, there does have to be some return on, on what they're doing. Um, I think the shift has come a little bit with longer ROIs being acceptable, especially within 3PL. We've seen a shift from, oh, it's got to be under two years to under three years to now five to seven years. We're starting to see a lot of trends where it, it can be a longer term play on, on what they're going to have as a return. And then um, since COVID, the factors of what they're considering into their ROI have changed too. So it's not just the pure play hard cost of storage labor, damage, um, all those different things. We're seeing risk being being a factor for, okay, one person got sick in my warehouse in 2020. Now I can't operate my warehouse for several days because we have to let things clear. So uh, different risk factors have, have have creeped into these ROIs, which is, has been needed you know, from a perspective change because those things should go in there anyways. Matt? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, in general, across automation, um, you're seeing more companies think about things more strategically and longer term. I mean, America's been a uh, I need a three year ROI type of uh, type of country for a long period of time, you know, and as you know, as, as, as Alex mentioned, things like the pandemic come up, which kind of shift people's thinking from, hey, do I need to do this or should I do this or does it make sense to do this to I have to do this because I have to bulletproof my supply chain and make sure that I can meet my customer demand. So you're really seeing a big shift. Um, you know, I think the 3PL is interesting to, to, to mention here because, you know, historically, especially on the ambient side, 3PL has been a very hard industry to automate for because of, you know, low, low, uh, low time to bid, you know, the contracts are usually like a year. So, you know, an automated solution takes probably at least a year to, to, to even sell, right? So installing it and getting it ready, um, a lot of times doesn't fit into the way they operate. But these days, specifically on the cold side, because of all the challenges that it has, um, you're seeing a lot of companies look more at it. And, you know, based on my understanding, because I think part of your question was also, you know, do we get involved in the ROI process? And the answer is certainly, right? You know, as I mentioned in one of my other answers, you know, they know their business very well, but we also know what we're doing very well. So blending that knowledge and making sure they're incorporating all the costs and looking at this, because, you know, at the end of the day, these projects are hard enough to sell because of the dollar value, the risk, you know, the timelines, you know, it's critical that we really help customers get the projects approved. So ROI is a big part of that. Hmm. Was there anything that we didn't cover that you guys wanted to talk about today? I'll start with you, Alex. 
I think we we touched on all of it. Again, that was a great way to finish things with that ROI. Yeah, I mean, um, Nick, and that's absolutely correct. We we weave ourselves so tightly into our customers' operations um, to understand how they do business, what they're really good at, and and we want to be basically a another employee to their company to help them justify these, have a great ROI, and for it to be a success at the end of the day. Um, to make sure that again, Matt's been in this a long time. I have too. You you, you want to make sure that these are long term relationships that the person feels like this was a great thing for us to do, and I can go tell somebody else about this as well. That a the project went well, it was designed well, and at the end of the day, it works. Yeah, I imagine you don't want to be in a in a project where it, it could be a bad project because that's a that's bad for not only for the the customer, but also for the, you know, the provider, right? I mean, it's a long-term relationship and if it goes poorly, it's not fun for anybody involved. So it's, it's gotta be the right project, finding the right customer and they've got to find the right solution and the solution provider. Matt, anything you wanted to add to the discussion before we end? Yeah, just kind of tie into that question. I mean, as far as like project success rate, another important thing to think about is, you know, not just who your automation vendor is, but who your general contractor is, right? You know, specifically in a freezer application, the GC makes such a big difference in their experience, specifically if they have ASRS experience, because I mean, one of the most critical parts of this entire thing is, is doing the slab, right? Because the slab has to not only be built with the different, you know, levels that, that you have in a frozen slab versus an ambient slab. There's a lot of delicate uh, delicateness to that that you don't have in an ambient warehouse. But, you know, tying that in then with automation and having these big, tall ASRS cranes would do a ton of forces and, you know, drilling through insulation and all of this other stuff that happens. I mean, choosing the right general contractor is, is equally as important or more important than choosing the right automation vendor. So, you know, find an ASRS vendor, I mean, excuse me, a general contractor that's got a good experience set in this space, and that'll greatly increase uh, your probability of success with the project. Excellent. Well, this was a very enlightening conversation today. I, I learned a lot myself and, and uh, you know, I spend my life in this industry. So this is there's pretty fun when I can learn a lot from two experts like the two of you. I want to thank you both. I want to thank Alex Reed and Matt Rivenbark for joining us today on the MHI Warehouse Automation uh, Industry Leadership Podcast. And then uh, if you want to learn more about ASRS systems, uh, please go to mhi.org slash ASRS to find other resources like this and the, some of the things that we've talked about. And uh, uh, as we uh, tune out today, I'd like you to just make sure you subscribe to the podcast and, and join us for more future podcasts as we bring more great content like this to, uh, to you as we continue on. Thank you both. Thanks, Christian. Thank you. The MHI Industry Leadership Podcast brings together the solutions, providers, and thought leaders of the materials handling industry to talk about trends, technologies, solutions, and best practices to move the industry forward. Christian Dow is the Executive Vice President of Membership and Industry Leadership at MHI. In each episode, Christian will be talking to the leaders and members of MHI's industry groups. Let's join him now.